This week, another Sport Bloke special. This week, we delve into the world of chokes. A missed rebound and a corner three for the ages. A cricketing nation allergic to finals. And a roller that became a pop sensation by not rowing. Not to mention a literal choke of a coach. Let's go. It's 10.26 on Tuesday, the 12th of October. 10.25 in my time zone. Right? <laughs> time zone. Look, right there, 10.25. Yeah, but the way, the way you say time zone. Oh, Shuey, it's finally here. Yes, I think we've teased this since, what, maybe episode 16 when we talked about choking. It is the choke special. It is that time. And i got to say, I've really looked forward to this. I've loved preparing for this. I did go through a range of emotions preparing for this in a way that will become apparent pretty soon. As with our normal specials, they'll be interspersed with other regular episodes whenever we can't do normal weekly ones for whatever reason. So my partner and I will be down in Augusta, which is why we're recording this now. I've got to say, Shuey, I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, Nathan, I'm pretty excited about this one too. One of my absolute favourite things about sports are the, the countless stories of the miraculous Accounts of the unlikely, tales of the impossible, those unbelievable moments that defy logic. They make us question whether we saw what we thought we saw. Any sportsman will have at least a few of these that particularly stand out to them. Oh, absolutely. And it's what it's all about, isn't it? I love the narrative. It's hard not to love a good fairy tale or underdog story. Exactly. Now, Isaac Newton, pretty smart guy, yeah? Oh, decent. Decent. Yeah. Well, well, his third law of motion states that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction and how right that is. So for every improbable win or implausible outcome, there's a heartbreaking story that counters it. A tale of woe or how the hell did that happen? The more miraculous the win, the more agonizing the relative defeat is as well. I would agree with that. But that's sport. Yep. And you can't ever truly appreciate the highest of highs without overcoming the lowest of lows first. Oh, God, I know where you're going with this, Chewie. Yep. <laughs> so as an example, we can ask the 2012-13 San Antonio Spurs. I know it's a tough one. I know it hurts. We'll <laughs> it go, always will. We'll go back to that story fairly shortly and discuss it in a bit more depth, though. Yeah, well, we absolutely have to. And it's a great example, Chewie, considering the genesis of this idea basically came from the LA Clippers blowing not only a 3-1 series lead to the Denver Nuggets in the 2019 bubble playoffs, but also blowing several games in that series as well. But first, we need to think about what actually constitutes a choke. Now, some people absolutely hate the phrase choke in sport, but I think it's an apt one. But what's the difference between a heartbreaking loss and a choke? Is there one? How much does context matter? Does it have to be a big comeback? If so, is there a threshold for margin or time left? Must it be a comeback against all odds? Can only teams that are favourite to win or those that are considered the better team or even just a good team choke? Can bad teams choke too? If players and teams can choke, can coaches? Can umpires or referees choke? These are all questions that we'll begin to start tackling and debate as we embark on multiple episodes, as I say, of the great sporting choke. I mean, there's so many great questions there and so much to consider. It's hard sometimes to find that fine line between a heartbreaking loss and a choke. Well, I guess it's almost eye of the beholder stuff, isn't it? One man or woman's choke is another man or woman's bad beat, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're so right. When we originally looked at recording this, it was around the start of February 2020. And <laughs> that goes to show. Yeah, it, it, it does. It's, <laughs> it's taken a while. But on the 29th of January this year, we had an unfortunate choke where Jesse Wagstaff of the Perth Wildcats blew a wide-open layup. Wide-open layup. Which would have won the game. And it, and it probably treads that line fairly closely. 
it's heartbreaking, but it also feels like a choke because it's something he would have done thousands of times in his life. I dare say if he got up with both hands instead of going with his left, he probably would have scored it. Yes. And I think a missed layup generally, especially a wide open one, probably is a choke generally. Yeah, it's probably true, actually. But, I mean, there's so many things to look at. And, and one of the questions you asked was around, can only teams that are favoured to win be considered chokers? I, I would well and truly answer that by saying no, not necessarily. A, a team that's favoured to lose can very much choke. I agree with that because, and this is where the context thing is really important, I think, because let's say two teams are playing and one's an overwhelming favourite. If that overwhelming favourite loses a star or two to injury, all of a sudden the opposition might become favourites in-game. And maybe, who knows, let's say it's a basketball game and they blow a 15-point lead or something. So absolutely, I agree. Anyone can choke and it's all about context. It's all context-dependent and match-dependent. Now, we've gone to the third umpire on this one too, so to speak. I've had a bit of a look through some of the old academic journals. So I did a number of different types of searches that basically involved the terms sport and choke in one way or another. And once I waded through the ones like this definition from an article I found in the journal, The Physician and Sports Medicine, titled The Safety of Sportive Chokes, that defines a choke as the practice of compressing the jugular veins and carotid arteries to threaten unconsciousness by lowering cerebral perfusion pressure. Now, that's obviously not the choke we're looking for. But I did find this definition, which I think is quite useful. So in the literature review kind of bit of an article, Public Expectation, Pressure and Avoiding the Choke, a case study from Elite Sport, taken from a 2014 publication in The Sports Psychologist, for those interested, authors Hodge and Smith say, and I quote, while there is some debate over the parameters, choking in sport has generally been defined as a substantial performance decrement under pressure, That is, a process whereby the individual perceives their resources as insufficient to meet the demands of the situation and concludes with a significant drop in performance. A choke. They go on. Choking is thus differentiated from a panic, unable to think rationally, the yips, which they say is involuntary movements, or a slump, which is an extended period of underperformance. Choking represents an acute and substantial underperformance in a one-off game or event. And then following on from that, I I guess there's probably three main types of chokes that I've certainly identified, and and that's following on from what you've just said, situational chokes. So it could be a team that's been decimated by injury but somehow manages in the last play of the game to just find this miraculous game winner or the other team happens to miss a shot that they should make or whatever it happens to be. So that little tiny situation or pocket of a game they choke. And I guess situationally, things that come to mind immediately are things like putting in goal, free throw shooting in basketball. Yeah, two very, very great examples of moments where it's just you. You and the elements around you, whether it's a hoop or a hole in the golf world, it could be the goalpost if we're playing football. Well, here's a question. Is missing a spot kick considered a choke? It's, it's a really tough one because the expectation is that you would score more than you miss, the same way with a free throw, the same way with a fairly short putt, or a kick from goal from maybe 30 metres out straight in front. But the goalkeeper has a 50% chance of guessing the right way, and then they just need to get a hand on it But at the same time, if you're putting the penalty in the right spot, which ideally you want to be hitting the inside of the side netting, not many goalkeepers, unless they go super early and dive to that right direction, should really be getting them. Yeah, as you said, it's a lot of guesswork really, isn't it? Exactly. And and quite often you'll see players just blast it straight up the middle, wait for the goalie to dive, and then bam. (laughs) That's my FIFA Xbox strategy, Stewie. Yeah, straight up the guts. Straight up the guts. Straight up the guts. So, yeah, look, you could certainly argue that there have been situations in penalty shootouts where there have been chokes, where guys have blasted the ball five or six metres over the crossbar. 
And that's a good point too, Shui. So maybe missing by a centimetre is not a choke, but if you blow the kick that horribly, maybe it could be. Maybe it's also dependent on how good the goalie is perceived to be. Exactly. And these are the things we'll grapple with. So there's a lot of grey area here. And as I say, when one person considers a choke, another may not. And these are things that we'll explore across these specials with a little help from our learned academic friends along the way. So then following on from situational chokes, you've got, I guess, the particular game choke. So it could be, as you say, a team that's expected to win fairly comfortably that happens to blow a game they should easily win. There's a really great example we'll talk about in a coming episode with the USA national soccer team versus Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, it's a great case. The might of Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> it, it just defies logic. It really uh, does. It's almost fateful. It really is. And then you've got what we spoke about at the start, which was the series or the season-related choke. So the much longer time period. So a team has a commanding lead in a series and just completely squanders it when they probably shouldn't have. Or they've gone undefeated in a season, like the Patriots team that lost to that 10 and 6 Giants in Super Bowl 42. You couldn't wait to have a jab at Tom Brady, could you? <laughs> Fair enough. But, <laughs> but no, absolutely spot on. That, that's one that could potentially go under two categories, actually, because obviously they've blown that game. But over the course of the season, they've built up an expectation that they really should dominate that game. So there's... So many different variables involved in all of this, which is really interesting. Uh, David Tyree helmet catch. And maybe you can choke a season, but not the game. So you could lose the game if it's a final, but maybe it was a close one or someone got injured. So maybe it's not a choke, but you've choked the season away because you were overwhelming favorites, for example. Yeah. And, and in that situation, it could come down to the fact that let's just say in that final that they lost, Tom Brady had hurt his knee in the first quarter. I say nothing. But yes, exactly. Context. Well, that, that would be you running out with a steel pipe hitting, on the, <laughs> hitting him on the knee. I'm not fucking Tonya Harding. Come on, mate. Jeez. But that becomes way less of a choke because you've got a second string quarterback coming in. So there's you know, so many of those things you've got to consider. I'd also go back and answer another one of your questions and say, yes, absolutely, umpires and referees and coaches can all choke. Oh, yeah, absolutely they can. And we'll definitely discuss that in the future too at some point in one of our future choke specials. And we've spoken in previous episodes about a number of different cases where referees have choked. The VAR was a huge deal in soccer for seemingly weeks on end earlier in the year. One of the big talking points I remember was a January NFL game, including helmet-to-helmet contact in the Kansas City Chiefs and Cleveland Browns game. Yeah, it's a bit of a distant memory now, but I do vaguely remember it. And that's one where the umpires really had choked because the umpire was standing all of about, I don't know, three feet away, should have had a pretty decent view. And it probably cost the Browns a touchdown in a game that they lost by five. In the same game, did the player choke by extended their arm to go for the touchdown when they could have got the first down? Yeah, I mean, you could certainly look at that and say that, it, that that's happened as well. I mean, thinking about it, shit, that's multi-layered. Right? <laughs> we got ourselves an inception choke. <laughs> so, look, there, there's uh, some really good ones. And you're right, coaches can definitely choke too. They can make the wrong decision. We'll talk about this with the Spurs soon, but there was definitely a coaching choke involved in one of those games, in my opinion. Yes, Shui, I look forward to talking about that one as much as it will hurt my heart. And in terms of there being a threshold for the margin or time left in the game, that's a lot trickier because, I mean, I can think of countless times over the years when you look at a particular scoreline and say, well, this game should be over. I think back to a game involving the Golden State Warriors and the LA Clippers in the 2019 playoffs. Warriors up 31 points with seven minutes 30 left in the third quarter, but there's still time. And then the Clippers make this furious comeback and they win the game by four, I think it was in the end. Yeah, early leads are so dangerous. As I often say, I almost hate an early lead. Yeah, they can be a curse. I mean, you would say that they hold less weight as a choke than maybe a team that was up by 15 points halfway through the fourth quarter because there's way less time. But 
the situation of it definitely will impact how much of a choke it's considered. And and looking at that Clippers game, I mean, the I guess the win-vis percentage you would use to, to, <laughs> to borrow a, a cricket term uh, yes. would be very, very high in terms of the, the team that's way ahead. And I think, Stewie, chokes are often discussed in terms of big comebacks or blowing big leads, but I think you're absolutely right. You can actually choke away a close game too. And it could be a game where the margin was, I don't know, consistently, let's say, only six points the entire way through in a basketball game and poor decision-making, poor mistakes, perhaps bad free-throw shooting, dare I say, it could still be considered a choke. Absolutely. I think in summary of all of this, a choke is its just a situation where you should win, but for whatever reason, whether it be, as you say, poor decision-making, skill errors, whatever it happens to be, you just don't. It can be such a broad thing. And, and as you mentioned, it's very much in the eye of the beholder. It often comes down to your context and your view of something, but it's one of the great things about sport. Oh, it really is. I might take this opportunity to go back to our learned friends again here too, Stewie. So this is Hodge and Smith from before. I quote, According to Hill et al., choking is a paradoxical occurrence which only happens if the athlete is striving for success in an event where the outcome is perceived to be important enough to affect their ego. Thus, choking is not a result of lack of motivation. In fact, it is the exact opposite. Athletes are highly motivated to succeed in the game or event in question. Ironically, those individuals most likely to fail under pressure are those that have the strongest capacity for success in the absence of pressure, such as a team who are favourites to win, for example, the All Blacks at the Rugby World Cup. But all right, Stewie, let's get this over and done with. Like a band-aid, put me out of my misery. Choke number one. 2013 NBA Finals, Game 6, the San Antonio Spurs at the Miami Heat. All right, let's run through the situation. Go on. So the Spurs led the 66-win Miami Heat team, headlined by LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh, 3-2 in the NBA Finals. Defending champion Heat, too, it's got to be said. It does have to be said, yes. In Game 6, the Spurs led by five points with just over 20 seconds left. LeBron James misses a three, but Mike Miller, of all people, probably the least athletic player on the court, gets the offensive rebound, gives it back to LeBron, who hits a three to cut it to two. Kawhi Leonard is foul. Our pretty decent free throw shooter, you would say. Yeah, it was, yeah. Maybe not quite as good with the Spurs, but... No, well, he was only 21, I think, at the time. But he only makes one of two free throws. Now, the lead is three. Again, LeBron misses a three, and again, Miami gets the offensive rebound, this time through Chris Bosh, who finds Ray Allen for a corner three to tie the game. Yes. I can see the anguish and the pain in your face. Oh, mate, I still to this day have not watched that full game, and I may never. I've seen the footage. I revisited it last night a couple of times, the last few minutes of the regulation. But, yes, I did not watch that full game. So the game goes to overtime. Miami wins by three. They tie the series up at three all, and then they win game seven behind 37 points and 12 boards from LeBron. Twice in game six, the Spurs were one defensive rebound away from securing the championship. And twice more, Kawhi Leonard and Manu Ginobili would miss key free throws that would have all but iced the game. But San Antonio choked it away. Yeah, and I think it was quite a big lead, wasn't it, from memory? Like, I remember you jinxed it by messaging me Fairly... Oh, I think that was actually when it was about a five-point game. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It was very late. It was oh, I thought quite the late. lead was bigger than nah, that. No, okay. quite late in the game. And okay. I, I absolutely, I blame myself for that one. <laughs> I actually tried to dig up my old phone to find the exact message, but I couldn't find it. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> now, look, obviously, there's the on-court stuff, but... I Missing free throws could be considered a choke. Missing free throws... Yeah, potentially can be a choke. I mean, yeah. you've got guys. The, the thing with the free throws is that no one has ever been 100% from the free throw line over their career. No, so and you, the pressure ramps up in the playoffs. 
late game situation. Yeah, you are going to miss some free throws. Yeah. And and obviously, yeah, a career 85% free throw shooter in that situation can very easily miss them because yeah. the pressure is high and we know what the stakes are. Late game situation, fatigue kicks in. Oh, the sad thing about this is they'd actually wheeled out the fucking trophy. About a third of the stadium left. People tried to get back in when they realised that the game had gone to OT and they locked the doors from memory. I don't think they let anyone back in. Good. <laughs> Honestly. Fair weather bastards. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. These Miami Heat fans all dressed in white that yep. are just there to be sane. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, on top of the on-court stuff, I, I honestly do believe this is a choke from Greg Popovich. He took Tim Duncan, one of the top 10 in the league in rebounding that season, out of the game for Boris Diaw. Now... Chris Bosch, who corralled the miss from LeBron before Allen tied it, was being guarded by Diaw. He gave a pretty weak show on LeBron's three and was just inside the free throw line when Bosch took the rebound away from Manu Ginobili and Danny Green. You could argue that Duncan might have been in the same position because he would have been involved in that, that screen. But I think he stays at home, secures the rebound, and the Spurs win. Yeah, you, you could also argue that as a big, he's going to close out slower and maybe that first shot drops. Potentially. So well, it's, it's, Diaz's closeout wasn't amazing. Though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's really easy to think of, I don't know, maybe I'm defending Greg Popovich. Like, it's it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't. I can see the logic. I can certainly see the logic. They wanted to defend the perimeter and, and stop the three. Funnily enough, in the commentary, they actually said, should the Spurs foul here to stop the three? Maybe they should have. I, I think that's a very, very good option. You've got to look at it. But... For me, if you are talking about being switchable and those sorts of things, Duncan for Diaw doesn't make any sense because Diaw's not a quick guy. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He he was Duncan always was, a bit pudgy, not quick. Yeah, Duncan's faster. Yeah. He can jump higher. Yeah, and he only had two fouls for the game, yeah. so there's no reason to do with fouls where they might be worried that he might pick up a sixth. So I'm sure Pop regrets that one. I would hope so. Now, the other thing we kind of want to do with these is talk about the legacy that these chokes leave. Yep. Because some chokes will have an even bigger significance based on what happens after that. Oh, yeah. Now, as a Spurs fan, I knew how much that one hurt. I, I was, to be honest, and this is one of the things that I hate saying out loud, I actually was a Spurs fan back then and I kind of defected to OKC. It's something I don't like doing, but... I felt the need to. I felt yeah, it made it interesting. Yeah, yeah. felt yeah. the need to move on. So it, it hurt me as well that the Spurs lost that one. But it made the next year way sweeter when the Spurs beat Miami in five games. Well, before we get there, and that does go back to what you mentioned about sometimes you can't really appreciate the highest of highs without overcoming the lowest of lows first. But the good sign that it didn't affect them too negatively was the fact that the Spurs competed really well in game seven. And we're right there till the very end. If Duncan doesn't miss that bunny that he makes 99 out of a thousand times. It's interesting we're talking about chokes, Nathan. I think you choked that stat. <laughs> yes, sorry. 999 out of a thousand times. Yes. So, yeah, so that was pleasing. And look, it was a really tough off season, but the Spurs bounced back big time and were really impressive the following season. You could almost argue that it was the most perfect final series of all time. The way that they dismantled the heat with ball movement, the the coming of age party for why Leonard bounced back. Amazing, <laughs> they sure did. Amazing finals race, MVP. Finals MVP. Yeah. Uh, after obviously the disappointment of that before he turned into a diva and fucked, fucked off. off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Crick. you know you couldn't have asked for a better turnaround from such a disappointment. And I know this isn't a chokey kind of example, but it's it's 
a bit reminiscent of the Swans Eagles back to back grand finals. Absolutely. That they took one each, but obviously, yeah, that second one wasn't so close. But in the, this case. But in that case, it's also very much the whole eye of the beholder. Yes. See, for me, 2005 was horrible because we lost and you won. So it was great for you. But the next year was sweet for me and probably horrible for you. So, yeah, very much eye of the beholder. For me, though, I guess the, the biggest legacy thing is sparing a thought for the likes of Dwan Blair, Gary Neal and Tracy McGrady, who all moved on to other teams or retired after 2013 without an NBA championship. Well, there's a school of thought that said Tracy McGrady was a cursed player because of the comments he made about finally getting out of the first round when he played for Orlando against Detroit. And that's why the Spurs lost. There was a lot of that during the rounds after it happened. It is tough. I mean, he was a good player. He deserved a championship. Whether you like him or not, I think he... Oh, I was a big fan. I was stoked when we got him. Yeah. So, yeah, look, in terms of the choke level, I'm going to give this a four out of ten. On the basis of legacy, I think that's probably about right. Yeah, it, it's not one of these hideous ones where the, the Spurs never won anything ever again. I mean, only having to wait a year is not particularly tough. I guess it's just the actual situation of it is probably the the only reason. The revenge was so sweet. It was, it was. Yeah, and, and look, if they don't win the next year, maybe it's, I don't know, a six. Six or a, yeah, 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 six yeah. Or a seven, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but no, look, four out of ten. A nice one to kind of ease in. I say a nice one. A pain, a, a pain, <laughs> Let's get it out of the way. Painful memory for you, but uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's one of the more recent chokes that we we all know of. Get it out of the way. So we move on now to the semi-final of the 1999 Cricket World Cup. This was a match between Australia and South Africa. Yeah, the Proteus, indeed. Now, when you think of chokers in cricket, it's hard to go past the South African cricket team. Their best choke job probably came in the second semi-final of the 99 World Cup against the Aussies. I might dispute that later on, but it's certainly the one that will stick in our minds as Australians, yeah. So Australia had a wretched day with the bat. Had it not been for a 90-run partnership between Steve Waugh and Michael Bevan, the under par 213 they made could easily have only been about 160. You're absolutely right there. You really are. But it's also got to be said, in the ODIs back in, well, 20-odd years ago, 213 was certainly more defendable than it is nowadays. Yeah, it's probably the equivalent of like a 260, 270 maybe. Longer boundaries. So a lot of ones that would have gone for four or six were often just three, for example. Mm. Now, it has to be said, it was a very tricky pitch. So Daryl Cullinan made six off 30. Gary Kirsten made 18 off 42. And it took Jacques Callis 92 balls to make his 53. So even though the bowlers were putting a whole bunch of pressure on them, we made inroads, but Lance Klusner was kind of the big difference. Lance Klusner, man, he used to fucking give me nightmares as a kid. Like He scared the crap out of me. He always seemed to dominate Australia. Not in a boogeyman kind of sense, no, no, no. but in a, oh, shit, we're playing South Africa. What's Lance going to do with bat and or ball this time? Absolutely. And it was true in this game as well. He was smashing them all over the place in the final overs. Look, admittedly, he was very, very lucky. In the penultimate over, he hit a full toss straight down Paul Rifle's throat, which Rifle dropped and parried for six. It was one of those funny ones. So it's Pitch McGrath bowling the second last over, and it was a very wide full toss. It was very un like But as you say, it was nearly caught. So it was one of those shit gets wickets kind of situations. But no, it, not this time. It should have been a regulation catch. Yeah. But eventually, South Africa only needed one run off four balls. Klusner sitting on 31 off 14. So to set the stage, they need nine off the last six balls, nine off the final over, 4-4 four, four straight away off Damien Fleming. Yep. And both balls were decent. Okay, the first one was maybe a little bit wide outside off, but he cracked it. 
And then the second one was quite a good delivery and he just slogged cover drive. They were magnificent shots. And magnificent. I, I remember specifically, so we had an old house in a, in a suburb called Hillary's for people who are outside of WA. It's a, it's a very rich suburb, but we were in the not so rich part of it. <laughs> and we had this little add-on back room that my dad and I were actually watching the game on this tiny little TV. And after the second four was hit, I saw his head drop and I, I didn't really understand cricket that well at that stage, but I knew that if my dad's acting like that, we are stuffed. Oh, I remember watching that one in Adelaide and I thought after the first one, we we're in big, big trouble. And after the second one, I thought, yeah, game over. Yep. So as I said, they needed just one run. That's right. Three balls to get it. Alan Donald was so keen to get the win though, that when Klusner hit the third ball of the over straight to Darren Lehman at mid on, he took off, very nearly got run out. Oh. Had Lehman hit the stumps, it's all over. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's that famous footage of the kind of nervous smile from Alan Donald. And that should have shocked them into conservatism. They still had two more balls to get one run. Yep. And the very next ball, Lance Klusner hits it past the bowler to Mark War and just took off. Donald, though, looked spooked as anything from the previous ball, didn't run. And one of the most farcical runouts of all time takes place. Donald, not even halfway down the pitch, didn't even have his bat in his hand. Oh, he was, he was basically still grounded at the bowler's end. Hmm. And to be honest, in my opinion, it was Klusner's fault. He made the call, started running, wasn't there. He should have turned back. Klusner actually fucked that up, in my opinion. But having said that, it was Klusner's call. Donald didn't react to it. And the result was the scores are tied and Australia win on a countback because this is before they had super overs. Yep. What makes this an even bigger choke, though, is that the Aussies should never have even been there. If you go back to the last Super Sixers match before the finals, Australia needed to actually beat South Africa just to qualify for the semis. Now, the South Africans made 271, which, as we mentioned before, is a very much above-par score. Oh, back then, for sure. And then Herschel Gibbs dropped Steve Waugh on 56, who went on to make 120 not out and hit the winning run off the third last ball. This was the infamous and unverified you've just dropped the World Cup moment. And if it's true, it has to be the greatest sledge of all time, considering the result of not just that match, but the semi-final and the final. There's been some really funny ones over the years. The one that immediately comes to mind is Terry Alderman. It pitched off, it hit off, now you can fuck off. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, there and he also, he was like, if I bowled a piano, do you reckon you'd be able to play that? <laughs> I like that one too. Uh, there, there was a pretty good one. One of the War Brothers was sledging someone and, and sort of said, oh, you know, you're not even good enough to make this team. And he said, well, at least I'm the best player in my family. So there's been some, yeah, some very, very clever ones out there. But in terms of the legacy, from there, Australia went on and beat a really piss-weak Pakistani team by eight wickets with nearly 30 overs remaining. This is a World Cup that South Africa should have and would have won. To this day, more than 22 years on, South Africa has never even been to a World Cup final or a T20 World Cup final in men's or women's. So the magnitude of this one is huge. So, Stewie, they'd previously won the 1998 Commonwealth Games gold medal, which is quite rare because that hasn't appeared much. Well, that was, that was in Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that like, it was almost an early iteration of 2020. It was bizarre. I remember watching it. It was very early gilly. Yeah, but Nate, the World Cup is what it's all about. We know that. Oh, now, let me run through some for you. 2003 World Cup group stages. There was effectively a knockout game against Sri Lanka. Whoever won the game was going to make it through. Now, the rain came pouring down, but they initially played through it. And this is why I said that maybe the one we've mentioned isn't the biggest choke, because this is really bad. So what happened was Sean Pollock got his Duckworth-Lewis calculations wrong. 
The rain was coming fast and the calculations said that they needed 229 by the end of the 45th over. Mark Boucher, who was pretty bloody handy, could slog a few. He hit Morley for six. That got them to 229. The rain's pissing down. Blocks the next ball thinking that they've done the job, assuming that they'll call stumps for rain at the end of the over. Problem was, 229 made it a tie. And a tie wasn't good enough. They needed to win. So if only he didn't block what probably could have been a run-scoring delivery, they get through. Oh, it's terrible. They look pretty good with the suit on the South Africans. They're good at ties. And and Jack Callis actually says that this one, that one was the worst of all. I mean, that is a big choke to get your Duckworth Lewis score wrong. True. Oh, and the rain was coming down fast. And to Sri Lanka's credit, they're just looking at the umpire going, come on. Like, and they know, I think they know that they're probably through because they had their numbers right. Now, 2011 World Cup quarterfinal. South Africa had dominated the group stages and entered the quarterfinal as a huge favourite over New Zealand. And they themselves had only just snuck in. Jesse Ryder hit 83, and that was good, but New Zealand only made 221, an achievable score. South Africa were cruising at 2 for 108. Callis got out on the fence, and then things turned to shit. So Faf Duplessis called de Villiers through for a suicide single, running out their star batsman, and the Kiwis just absolutely got all around him, really got in his head. And the pressure just got to them. They absolutely crumbled. They lost their last eight wickets for just 64 and were bundled out by 49 runs chasing just 221. Now, I actually remember we were sitting in the restaurant of the hotel we were staying at in Colombo, just right across the road from the trade towers that they have there. And we were watching that game on a mini TV while we were having our dinner. Uh, I remember having a very nice spaghetti that night, actually. <laughs> Funnily, I've got no idea what you had, but I remember that spaghetti. I can't remember. And, and we were listening to a bloke playing the piano and singing rather averagely. Oh, yeah. I don't think, though, that we have laughed that hard watching that game and just going, yep, it's over. There's, oh. there's no way that South Africa loses from here. And then just looking at each other in disbelief and laughing, like, how is Jacob Oram taking them apart? Like, that catch, he bowled superbly, took a bunch of wickets, and, yeah, all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, they've done it again. Yeah. And and in researching for this episode, I forgot how badly they were as chokers. They've really just choked so many times. So 2013, Champions Trophy semi-final. In the lead up to the match against England, AB de Villiers was pretty confident about the chances of finally shedding this chokers tag. They then went on to lose eight for 80. De Villiers himself had a nine-ball duck. They were all out for 175. Ironically, Jonathan Trott, born in South Africa, smashed an unbeaten 82, and England won by seven wickets with more than 12 overs to spare. To quote Gary Kirsten, I think we did choke in the game. You've got to accept that that's what it is. It's definitely a dark mist that hangs over South African cricket in knockout events. Next, 2015 World Cup semi-final. Now, this one's a bit interesting. Do you remember watching this one? Because obviously we made the final. I don't remember they were in the semi. Yeah, like so New Zealand beat them in the semi and we were over in Melbourne for the final to watch Australia-New Zealand, which thankfully we won. And not, look, we watch, I, I remember Australia-Pakistan. I remember getting a scare from Pakistan in the quarters. We would have watched this game, but I just don't remember it. I, I remember watching the Australia-India game on my computer at, yeah. work, at work. Right. In the middle of a shopping centre. Right. But I don't remember South Africa even being in the semi for that. Yeah, really I don't know. Maybe were we flying when this happened or something? I just, anyway, I don't remember. 
But this one's not without controversy. So before the match even began, it's said that South Africa's Minister of Sport said the team had to put Vernon Philander in at the expense of Kyle Abbott because of race. Now, fair enough, they want representation from the African community. That's fine. The problem was, though, that Philander was half fit and Kyle Abbott was basically having the tournament of his life. So that was a massive thing. Now, with that being said, they probably gave themselves every chance of victory with a score of 298. Very defendable. I think you'll agree. Yeah. Even against one of the host nations. But there was a myriad of fielding mistakes, missed runouts, a play where two players in the outfield collided in what should have been a fairly regulation catch. Again, they choked it away. And the footage is just tears streaming down pretty much every player's face from memory. Like it's because I've, as I say, I don't remember watching it, but I've since done my research and watched the videos. And again, 2017 this time, Champions Trophy in the group stage. They were the world number one ODI side and they were red hot favorites. Again, talking of dropping that choker tag, but they lost to the eighth-ranked Pakistan. And then after a pretty good start of two for 140, they proceeded to lose their final eight wickets for just 51 runs. Again, a myriad of poor decisions running between wickets and some really bad bowling. It's incredible how bad the legacy of choking is on this team. And I remember when we were in the Caribbean in 2007, and I have told this story before, we met some South Africans in our cool hotel, the Red Parrot or whatever it was called. And they we caught the bus with them to the ground and they were like, no, no, you guys are going to win. And we're like, no, you guys have got a bloody good team. They're like, no, nah, we're chokers. You guys are going to win. And sure enough, they were shit in that semi too. They were. So what's the uh, level on this well, one, Stuart? But this is the thing though. Before we even get to the level, you've also got to look at the flip side of that from the Aussies. They win it in 1999. Yeah, well, it's the start of something very special. They dominate the 2003 and 2007 World Cups without even being challenged in any of the games. Yep. And then they take out the 2015 title on home soil as well. So And dominate world cricket. The test team has that streak around that time. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, nine out of ten, does that sound fair? It's, I think it's, ten. It's, it's, like, I think it's borderline ten. Oh, it is. I think it is. Given all these events, just one after the other, but being favourites, really bad decisions in the heat of the moment. I think it's a ten if, out of ten if, show. If I look at this on, a, on an individual basis, though, of just this game, for me, it's a nine. I, I think you, you're right. Like, if you look at the entirety of everything you've just come up yeah, with. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Absolutely. The the total of that is a 10. Yeah. But yeah, oh, it's, it's horrible. It's and, ag- and again, for the record, while he dominated and got them in that great position, I do think Lance Klusner blew it by making that run when he still had two balls left. Fair enough. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, you can't have a choking special without one of the most iconic and literal choke jobs in the history of sport. Yes, indeed. The 1997-98 Golden State Warriors were a terrible team. The days of run TMC with Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond and Chris Mullen were long gone, as was Chris Webber. All that really remained was Latrell Sprewell, Joe Smith and a lot of pretty average role players. They lost their first nine games of the season, and by the time practice rolled around on the 1st of December, they were 1-13, dead last in the Western Conference, and only ahead of the Toronto Raptors, who were in just their third year in the league. Frustration was brewing, and at that practice, it finally boiled over. During a drill, coach PJ Carlissimo accused Sprewell of not throwing passes hard enough, which, as an NBA player, very embarrassing. Words were exchanged, and in a flash, Sprewell grabs Carlissimo around the neck and actually starts choking him. He was dragged off by some players, and after leaving the court, Sprewell came back and had another go at him, demanding to be traded and punching Carlissimo in the face before he left. 
The remaining $23.7 million of his contract was terminated. Then the commissioner, the late David Stern, suspended him for a year without pay. After a series of legal challenges, Sprewell eventually had his contract reinstated, but he was traded to the New York Knicks for Terry Cummings, John Starks, and Chris Mills. Now, Cummings and Starks were well past their prime at that stage. Mills was injured for most of the time he was with the Warriors. Sprewell had a few decent seasons with the Knicks, including leading them from the eight seed in the East to the finals, where the Spurs dismantled them pretty badly. Well, he actually came out pretty good out of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> they went there, like you say, they made the finals. Yeah. In 2002, Sprewell turned up to training camp with a broken hand, saying he fell over on a yacht. It was revealed that he actually broke it in a fist fight and he was fined by the Knicks and traded to the Timberwolves at the end of the season. To round out his career perfectly, after being offered a $21 million contract extension in 2004, Sprewell infamously stated, I have a family to feed. If Glenn Taylor wants to see my family fed, he'd better cough up some money. Oh, man. What is he feeding them? So tone deaf. Gold-plated saffron-colored caviar. Oh, man. Oh. And I love PJ. Have you seen PJ as an analyst much? Yeah. Yeah. He is one of the best. He's brilliant. Like... I'm a big fan of PJ. Of course, coached the Andrew Gay's Seton Hall College team. Yes, he did. But yeah, I, it's just such a bizarre story. It a is. bizarre story. And I read the article in the one-on-one about this on numerous occasions because it was the one one-on-one I had stuffed in my work record that I'd pull out every single silent reading. <laughs> and, and, and it got taken off you so many times. Oh, sure did. But yeah, oh man, it's just crazy, crazy stuff. So for literally choking away your chance to remain the face of the Warriors, all I can say to you, Latrell Sprewell, is bloody hell. Bloody hell. Choke level 12 out of 10. (laughs) Bloody hell. We've maybe saved the best for last, Joey, or if not best, certainly most fascinating. Hmm. Takes us to the 2004 Olympic Women's Eights Rowing Final and the tale of Sally Robbins. Yes, indeed. So Perth girl Sally Robbins will long go down in infamy for an incident that resulted in her being given the unfortunate nickname of Lay Down Sally. A reference to a Eric Clapton song, who, by the way, did a recent Freedom concert because he's an anti-vaxxer. Just an extra tidbit there. I used to like him. Yeah, well. Not anymore. Anyway. So this is just an unfortunate case of an athlete's body giving out at the most inopportune time possible. Robbins was in the 2004 Olympics in Athens, representing Australia in the 2,000-metre women's eights rowing final. The Aussies made the six-team final. And keep in mind, there were only seven teams that entered, and Australia qualified in the rapid charge, which, for people who don't know, is a, a race Second of teams. Second chance. Yeah, a race of teams that didn't qualify to see who would get that last spot in the final. Yeah. And was it her body or was it her mind is a question, I think. Uh, could have been both. Mm. Could have been both. So funnily enough, about the rapid charge. Now, Kaima Doyle, I think, was the captain of the team. She said, we kind of lost Sally after the rapid charge. She really retracted into herself. And during the last 300 meters, I lost all support and I lost all power. As soon as that happened at the rapid charge, we just knew, we just knew come finals that it would happen. It was just a matter of when. Pretty damning. Those pauses are direct quotes. Yes, yes. Now, the mind versus body thing. Apparently, she had a spew before the race. Now, it's not uncommon for athletes to have a bit of a spew sometimes before a big event. Funnily enough, according to a biography written by Murray Nelson, Bill Russell's puking became such a pregame event that Celtics coach Red Auerbach would not let the team onto the floor until Russell had vomited. Wow. (laughs) I did not know that. It was considered a good luck charm. Oh, God. Oh, wow. It got to the point where Russell's teammate, when John Havlicek heard the sound of vomiting, I quote, 
It means he's keyed up for the game and around the locker room, we grin and say, man, we're going to go all right tonight. <laughs> Not the case for Sally. Though. Imagine what guys sitting there trying to stick their fingers down his throat. <laughs> Come on, Bill. It's 10.30. I want to play. <laughs> Not the case for Sally, though, Stewie. Not the case. So at the halfway mark, the Aussies were positioned really well, about half a second behind the leading American team and less than 0.3 of a second behind Romania in second. Now, the US team were very highly favoured. They achieved a world record in the heats and the Romanian team were very well favoured too. They boasted an athlete who was not only 40, but she'd won six medals dating back to 1984. So two very good teams. Pretty impressive. Yeah. So at the halfway mark, the Aussies are positioned really well. Half a second behind the leading American team and less than three-tenths of a second behind Romania in second. Absolutely nothing in it. And this is the point where it all turns to shit because it's reported that Katie Fox is at this point shouting, let's take Romania, which is the instruction to really put the foot down and really go for that gold. So from there, they've kind of started to slip back into the pack. And by the 1500 metre mark, they were back in fifth, three seconds adrift. All of a sudden, they've gone from the picture. You blinked and they were gone. Yep. Robbins's body had basically shut down with exhaustion. It all dropped into the water, creating drag, and she lay back onto teammate Julia Wilson's lap. Yes, and Julia Wilson apparently had been pushing her in the back and head, trying to coax her to get up. The result was the Aussies finished 10 seconds behind Germany in fifth and 14 seconds behind the winners, Romania. Yes, and this is where it gets really weird. So her teammates were not happy with her at all. So Julia Wilson made it abundantly clear that there were no technical issues at all and that all but one of the team were giving it their all. The top brass for the Australian, I guess, Olympic Committee or the rowing, whatever it is, basically put a gag order on the rest of the team because they were worried about them saying anything wrong. Well, yeah, the team definitely had had that gag order, but... Tell you what, the media didn't. Oh, yeah, they were ruthless. The Daily Telegraph actually said, and I quote, in a team sport such as rowing, what she did was unforgivable. It appears Robbins committed the greatest crime there is in honest sport. She quit. First of all, what's dishonest sport? Um, can't think of anything. Gambling. <laughs> there were headlines like, it's eight, mate, pull your weight, and lay down Sally, of course, which was the other famous one. So Sally was allowed to speak, and she came out and said, Oh, you know, the team knew about some of the issues that I'd faced. But it was a bit more complex than that. This was not an isolated incident by any stretch of the imagination. So this has garnered heaps of attention in many different ways. There's a guy called Peter Wilkins who wrote a book called Don't Rock the Boat. Now, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get our hands on it. But he said, and I quote, each time one of the eight who spoke for the book told me their story, it sort of opened another little door. It was stunning to find out that there had been so many times where this sort of flaw had surfaced and yet nothing had been done about it. How could this be? How could a rower keep on rowing in a team sport where one of the main priorities, one of the main criteria is the ability to row from point A to point B? From a little bit of digging, there was evidence, anecdotally and otherwise, that it had happened possibly as many as nine times before. I love your Peter Wilkins voice. It's therapeutic. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually, there's quite a lot of information about this. So Kaima Doyle, She'd actually been in a boat at least seven different times when Robbins had laid down. At the 2002 World Rowing Championships in Seville, Robbins was participating in the quad skull event. She dropped her oar cost in the Aussies a certain victory. Rachel Taylor, who herself won a silver medal in the 2000 Olympics, said, Australia was blitzing the race, leading the entire field all the way. It was about as sure a thing as you could get to having the world title in the bag when with approximately 400 metres to go, Sally Robbins stopped rowing. Again, at nearly the three-quarter mark. Exactly. 
The Australian crew dropped back and finished in fourth position. Sally's three teammates were understandably shocked, devastated and inconsolable, not at all dissimilar to the sickening reenactment I witnessed on Sunday. I've got a few other quotes too, but how's this for starters? So apparently after the race, they have to row back to the shore or they have to row back to where they can get off the boat. And Sally was rowing back. And apparently one one of the team members said, why are you rowing now? You didn't row when it counted, just stop rowing. Basically, I, I that's not a direct I, quote, I would but probably, that's I would be the person that say that as well. Apparently, someone else said, "Why don't you just get out and swim back?" <laughs> Ouch! Couple of other quotes, Stewie. Rachel Taylor. Those girls have all had to overcome an enormous trust issue with Sally in the last couple of years about you know whether or not they thought she'd ever do it again after watching her do it in the women's court in two thousand two. Now, every single one of them had to work to overcome that. And now, you know, in what should have been one of the greatest moments of their lives, finally, they're getting to showcase a culmination of up to 10 years of work each. And this is trust that is betrayed on the highest level by Sally. And it's tragic for Sal. It's tragic for all the girls in the eight. No one is a winner here. It's just a disgrace all round. Kaima Doyle. That race, it's so hard because I look back on it and it's like my best sporting moment and my worst sporting moment rolled into one. So whenever I meet anyone new, I don't bring it up. Monique Heinke. Most of the time, Sally was one of the fittest, strongest athletes in the crew. I mean, a great asset to have within the crew through training. It was just racing that tended to be uncertain. I guess my main concern about Sally's performance in the final was her ability to actually finish the race. And in the past, it was the point in the race where you started to race for the finish line, and that's where the problems started to happen. Here's a quote that's maybe a bit less diplomatic. So you and I actually, way back when, when we started preparing for this episode, and we've had a few false starts with it, we actually found the race and we looked at it. And, you know, there was a funny uh, commentary moment at one stage where the commentator says, look at the American women with their cocks there. (laughs) But anyway, Millie Ward was a YouTube commenter on the race. And she said, I know one of the reserves for that race. And Sally took her place. For everyone who said we should give her a break, no, we shouldn't. All these girls trained for four years for that race. Even the ones who didn't get a chance to be in the race, they still put in the hard yards to even get to Athens. And for one selfish woman to just stop rowing because she didn't want to push herself and do the best she can, not just for herself, but for the girls, the coaches, etc., is simply unfair. And she could have given up her spot for someone who was willing to put in as much effort as the other girls in that crew and maybe turned it into a win. She knew it could happen. It's happened before. She ruined it for everyone. The other crew member, sick, have every right to be angry. In fact, I think they have every right to give her a massive bitch slap for what she did. Let me know if you agree. Wow. Now, we didn't kind of scour through the comments to see what had been said, but I suspect that it was pretty other nasty stuff in there. The joys of the internet. So a lot, a lot of legacy from this one. Obviously, we've yeah. just read so many crazy comments about all of this. I mean, the aftermath was nothing short of brutal. She was a social pariah. She received every insult you could imagine. And probably the most ridiculous part of this is that in 2017, a musical comedy popped up in the Chapel off Chapel venue in Melbourne called Lay Down Sally, an awesome new musical Robin Hearts around the world. Now, it actually featured Nick Giannopoulos of uh, Acropolis Now and Wogboy fame. And it's a bizarre story. Someone playing Stephen Bradbury was her coach in this fictional play. So it kind of wove in all these major sporting icons in Australia. Yeah. Well, it was actually called, and I quote, a satirical look at Australia's obsession with sport and the harsh media spotlight faced by some of our top athletes. So that whole thing with Bradbury kind of makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And 
when you look at it that way, it is kind of cool that people are giving it that kind of attention and not just basically saying you're a piece of shit for laying down. Like let's look, <laughs> let's look at the obsession and the harsh media spotlight and all that sort of stuff. Interestingly, though, Sally actually expressed her interest in rolling in the 2018. She did not achieve the required qualification times, but it did not matter. Australia finished sixth in the final yet again. Ah, interesting. I dare say they wouldn't have let her in the boat anyway. No, well, and this is the question for me, though, Stewie. So is Sally the choke artist here or is it the team? And by the team, I mean the selectors. I mean, if she's done this seven to nine times before, she shouldn't have been allowed to race. They shouldn't have picked her. So going back to that book I mentioned before, a former head psychologist with the Australian Institute of Sport who worked very closely with Australia's rowers in Atlanta and Sydney, so 96 and 2000, reportedly said that Rowing Australia should have accepted a degree of responsibility for the breakdown of Sally Robbins in Athens because it had stopped using sports psychologists in 2001 in order to cut costs. And medals. Well. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a good point you make, though. And definitely it's not just a case of, she just rocked up and sat down in the in the boat and started rowing and then stopped. There is a, obviously a huge process that goes from the start to finish. So, yeah, you're definitely right. They are not as culpable, but fairly close to it, you would think. I, I reckon after that many instances, they're responsible. It's, it's, a, it's almost a for me once, for me twice kind of situation. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, look, at the same time as well. She knows her body. Or for me seven times. For, yeah. <laughs> for me nine times. Shame on. Shame on rowing Australia. You can't get fooled nine times. <laughs> uh, Somewhat ironically, though, Sally is now a yoga instructor, a profession which involves a lot of lying down. <laughs> and I dare say she's not staying in touch with her teammates. Apparently at the Welcome Home parade that they had in Sydney, one of her teammates slapped her during the parade. So I don't know what was said or what happened, but yeah. So what do we give this choke? Uh, well, as Aussies, we think we should win every single medal. But in my research, I found, and again, you mentioned the repercharge, we probably weren't top three favourites. Mm. So I don't think you can really put it more than maybe five out of ten. Yeah, I, I originally had this as a seven when I started doing this. But the more I think about it, the more I realise that, yeah, we weren't gold medal favourites. No. It's not so much a choke in terms of... A fascinating story. Yeah, the expectations were probably a little bit higher, as you say, because we expect to win everything. But, yeah, you're probably right. This is probably right down the middle around a five. How's this? I'll give Sally a five and I'll give Rowing Australia a nine because she apparently did it nine previous times. There you go. All right, Stuart, you know what that music means. End of the long-awaited choke special one. And, well, next time, whenever it is we upload, we'll have a bit of a European flavour to it, won't it? Indeed we will. On the next choke special, we head to Carnoustie. Or Carnasty. Carnasty, indeed. For one of the sickest burns of all time <laughs> in the 1999 Open Championship. See what you did there, nice. And we check out <laughs> an all-time shocker at Wimbledon during the 1993 Wimbledon singles final. Ah, uh, yes, lots and lots of puns and hopefully some fun too. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. Or the Sport Chokes. <laughs>